Thank you very much. It's, it's very nice to see you. I don't know how many of you are going to the performance or how many of you are um, past attendees, but you're all very welcome, and it's my enormous pleasure to introduce Andrew Motion. I'm deleting his knighthood, uh, <laughs> which he's very proud of but doesn't like to use too much, so from now on it's Andrew. But it's I- extremely nice to have you here, and we've well managed to, nice to negotiate here. the rigging. Got it. <laughs> um, and um, I'm Jim Nochty, and we know each other anyway, so we intended to have just a very kind of pleasant conversation, um, an inclusive conversation, uh, for, I don't know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and then to bring you all in. And of course, the reason we're here is Treasure Island, uh, the set of which we're sitting on now, and a book which certainly mesmerized me as a child because I read Stevenson and um, still do. Uh, in the Tusitala edition, yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, those lovely little books, Tusitala, Teller of Tales, when he went to the Samoan Islands for the last years of his life in illness. Um, and I just want to start, Andrew, before I mention the two books of which you'll be aware, the, the follow-up to Treasure Island, Silver, The Return to Treasure Island, and then, uh, most recently, The New World, which follows the exploits of the children of Jim Hawkins and Long John Silver in wonderful Stevensonian style. But I want to take you back to where it all begins, Andrew, and your first encounter with Stevenson. I mean, what was it that made you think, this guy can really write, and when did it happen? Well, I didn't want to give the wrong impression of what my childhood was like when I say that I didn't read any books in my childhood, because I clearly wasn't born in a ditch. I mean, maybe there are books in ditches, but I I was not born in a ditch. Um, But my family were very unbookish indeed. My mum read a bit. My father, um, towards the end of his much longer than my mother's life, my father looked at me with a funny expression on his face one day and said that he reckoned he'd read half a book in his entire life. And he wasn't. Unmeant it. He was was not exaggerating. Um, So I didn't read any books, not because I sort of had it in for them. I was just, didn't know about them really. Um, So I didn't read all the books in childhood that I might have been expected to read in childhood, which probably would have included Treasure Island. But when I got to university, um, my then-girlfriend, who taught me a lot (laughs) about everything, um, made me read various books that she reckoned I should have read back then, and one of them was Treasure Island. So I first read Treasure Island when I was about sort of 18, 19, and pretty well immediately I thought how wonderful it is to read a book which everybody talks about as a, a sort of national classic that turns out to be really good fun instead of slightly sort of improving for you but a bit dull. Indeed. Um, there's nothing dull about it whatsoever. But also to anticipate where you're sort of leading with that question. I remember then in a much less articulate way than I hope I thought about it later being very interested by the way in which the book, more than most books do, makes obvious its own, the sense of its story having the potential to continue. And we do know that Stevenson was very interested in sequels. I mean, he wrote a sequel to Kidnapped. Um, But a book on which we're told on the first page, as we are on with Mm. Treasure Island, that the silver is still on the island. Um, I mean, they take the bits and bobs, the gold. So he saw the afterworld as well as the... Well, he was a genius, as you and I both agree. I mean, of an extraordinary kind, but he, he had a kind of practicality about it, about him too. And I think he sowed seeds in this book, which would have allowed him to go back to it himself had he lived longer. The silver is still there. Long John Silver escapes. 
And of course, at the end of the story, as the Hispaniola sails away over the bulge of the world, um, they leave behind three really malevolent parrots on the, on the island. So what happened to them? So there are all these kind of very interesting windows to clamber back through into the story, I think. And I remember feeling that that was part of its fascination when I... Well, in the very first it. paragraph, exactly. he says when Squire Trelawney and exactly. Dr. Livesey and co. wanted him to write, and, only, uh, and that only because there is still treasure not yet e lifted. Exactly. So from the very beginning, yeah. you're aware that this Indeed. is something which even by the end of the book hasn't been... Quite. Quite. But I, you know, I remember, I can't remember when I first read this, but I mean, I must have been eight, nine, ten, eleven, you know, th that sort of territory. And um, the sound of blind pews yeah. stick on the street as he approaches the Admiral Benbury. Jim Hawkins in the Apple Barrel, yeah. overhearing yes. the conversation which threatens his yes. life. The fight, it's, it's it, it, you know, it, it kidnapped, there are all kinds of yeah. se se uh, sequences of exactly Indeed. the same kind. The, the compression and the brilliance of drama yeah. is great. Well, that's crucial to it. I mean, that is absolutely the, uh, close to the heart of why Stevenson is as good as he is, I think, in these books and elsewhere, too. Um, everything happens at incredibly quickly. He actually wrote the book very quickly, as you probably remember. He wrote the first half in something like a fortnight, um, then moved house, and then wrote the second half in something like a month. So the whole thing is written in about six weeks. Amazing. And you can feel that sort of hurtling power in it, I think, when you're reading it. One of the interesting effects that that has is to make almost everything that happens not be meditated upon. So people get trampled by horses, or they get shot, or they fall out of the rigging, or dreadful and extraordinary things happen. A lot of it is very violent. Um, but almost never does the narrative then sort of pull on the reins and say, Jim thought, or I, Jim, thought yes. this about it. It just happens. It's kind of weirdly existential, I think. And it's very interesting to think that that is part of the not the hastiness, but the sort of pell-mellness of the, of the book. And he also has a way of um, creating a character in a few lines, uh, whether it's Captain Flint or right. Silver himself, um, with a backstory yeah. which is hinted exactly. at, w which is so rich yeah. and so terrifying and spooky, <laughs> but he's only just, it, it's kind of glanced at, but, but it, it lodges in your mind. Well, I think that's very interestingly to do with the way in which it both absorbs, I mean, when does it come out? 1883. Mm. It both absorbs existing ideas of what boys, and this is how Stevenson, yes. of course, talks about it, boys' adventure stories, what ingredients they need to contain, and also how that its own pattern has been sort of taken up by subsequent books, films, you name it, which deal with this kind of thing. So when Stevenson's talking about how he picked various bits of the story from other stories contemporary to his writing of this, in fact, he refers to this book as, I mean, he says something like such a piece of plagiarism you never saw, or I haven't got that quite right, but mm. I mean, he's very well aware of it, as I say, absorbing all these tropes from, uh, from the time. And they do continue. So even though I don't think there's anybody with one leg in Pirates of the Caribbean, you know that whoever had the idea for Pirates of the Caribbean yes. has Treasure Island in mind. Um, so it, it is very rich in the way that you describe, both in its time and coming forward. It has become, even though it is a kind of plagiaristic thing in a sense, mm. it has become absolutely the template for stories like this. There are also, if you look at the themes in it, I mean, there is adventure, the quest. Mm. There's also the aloneness. Yeah. 
the yeah. loneliness, yeah. which which you in um, in the two sequels have um, taken and and used to to, to wonderful effect with the well. children of. Hawkins and Silver, who, I mean, I won't spoil the plot, but, you know, they, they have various adventures back on the island, then there's a wreck, and then they go elsewhere, and they're, they're in the Americas. Um, and there is that same sense of what I suppose, in an American context, we call the frontier spirit. Right. Well, I, th I mean, that certainly attracted me about it, but the, the earlier thing that you mentioned there, the, the sense of aloneness attracted me very much, too. I mean, the book is a ripping yarn of a very yes. kind of high caliber kind. But it also has a sort of, it feels saturated in melancholy of a certain sort too. And I think that's got a lot to do with something that we haven't yet mentioned, which is that, I mean, just to step back for a second to introduce this idea, I've always been very taken with the thought that all books, and it's often more manifest in novels than it is in poems, have a kind of secret engine. I mean, they, they appear to be about this and that, that's what the story, their stories tell you. But down in the engine room, there's something not often that spelt out going on. And I think that Stevenson's, in fact, I'm convinced that Stevenson's secret engine in this book and in most of the others yeah. is about father-son relations. Yes. We know that he had complicated feelings about his own father, who doesn't? Um, looking at the children in the audience. <laughs> and as <laughs> um, for his nanny, well, as, well I mean, quite. there we go. But actually, if you think about father-son relations in, in Treasure Island, the father, the, the natural father, as it were, dies very early on, so he's got out of the way. Yes. Um, in this very male book, and there are almost no women no, in it, but no. so the dad dies very early on. And then what do we think about Long John Silver, Mr. Silver? Well, sometimes he's the most malevolent thing you can imagine. He's murderous, he's completely duplicitous, he's utterly untrustworthy. Um, I mean, talk about selling your granny. I mean, he'd do yes. it absolutely the drop of a hat. Um, and then other times, he's very good company, He's oh, brave. And, and he's kind. And he's kind. And he's a good cook. <laughs> um, and actually, Jim is sort of on and offly aware of this flipping in silver. Sometimes he's a bad father and sometimes he's a good father. Wasn't it... Uh, it's just out of the recesses of my mind, and it may be wrong. But I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who said, right. if you want to make a man really evil, yeah. let him do one very kind thing. That's a very good idea. <laughs> it is. So there's yeah. a... Right. You know, well, it brings them nobody close. Is, to nobody's a caricature. Absolutely. Maybe. Well, that's that's the way to avoid. You see, it's very interesting. You talk about. We didn't rehearse this at all, by the way. Um, no, we didn't. Uh, I mean, I know it shows, but <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, it, it, it's very interesting. You talk about the father-son thing because I, I was rereading Kidnap the other day mm. for other reasons. It's another good example. A terrific book. Yeah. But it it begins. I mean, some of you will know it. Um, it begins with David Balfour, the, the hero of the book. Um, leaving home um, just outside Edinburgh um, as a consequence of the death of his father and seeking his inheritance mm. and having this awful experience at the House of Shaw's with his uncle Ebenezer. And of course, it turns out that there's a family deception to right. rob him of his inheritance. And really, it, it's a very lonely progress through his adventures in the, in the post-1745 uh, period when Scotland was mm. you know, riven by uh, political disputes and violence and so on. 
but fundamentally, it is a story of the search for a family. Yeah, it really is. I think that runs all the way through Stevenson. You see it in the poems as well. Actually, it's sort of everywhere. And uh, which takes us to Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, quite so. I mean, that's another very well, interesting. Some of you may say Jekyll and Hyde, but I'm afraid let's not have that <laughs> argument. We'll say Jekyll and Hyde. Um, Stevenson wasn't interested in gardens anyway. So, um, well, actually, he was <laughs> well, he a child's no, garden. Sorry, that was a silly thing to say. No, but no, anyway, well, but, but I mean, Jekyll and Hyde is. Um, th- the most extraordinary exploration yeah. of um, self. It is. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde has writ larger than it is in Treasure Island, a sort of pre-Freudian mm. anticipation of what Freud would later, yes. among other things, be very interested in. And I think that's both very striking in itself and also important in relation to the setting of Treasure Island. I mean, as, as those of you who are about to see it later on will be made aware, um, Stevenson doesn't tell us exactly when it's set. 17 blank blank, he says, somewhere in the text. Well, the the real Stevenson experts have sort of triangulated this and reckon it's sort of 1760-something. Because you're saying in in Silver, I think, you set that in the the first decade of the 19th century and you say it's 40 years. Well, why I did that, I mean, I I would much rather talk about Stevenson than me, really, but but, but why I did that briefly is, is because I think that crucially and actually very revealingly of its nature. Treasure Island is a kind of pre-Enlightenment story. It's mm. a pre-French Revolution story. So ideas about women, about creatures, animals, about the self, all these are things which change tremendously right at, I mean, sort of 40-odd years after it's composed. Um, and history becomes a history that we recognize and feel perhaps more connected to because it's more like ours. I mean, the great romantic eruption around 1800. So this is a, a book in which women are really not allowed to appear at all. Um, animals are referred to as dumb creatures in a sort of pre-John mm. Clareish Enlightenment way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I thought that looking at the history of sequels and prequels, which are kind of the same for the benefit of this conversation at, at least, the same in this respect, it is very noticeable that the ones that work, which are vastly outnumbered by the ones that don't work, I mean, it is a sort of road to hell writing a sequel and prequel, I yes. think. Um, so it's a bit of a silly thing to do, perhaps. Um, at least it's a very high-risk thing to do, anyway. But the ones that do work, work because they take a very big step away from the original. So I know it's a play, but Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wor- Stern works, are dead works, because yes. it, take, it leaps away from Hamlet and then comes back and hits it in an interesting angle, or... White Sargasso see another Caribbean story. It's a prequel, but again, sort of same difference. Works because it takes us a long way away from the original and then comes back. And I thought if I moved my book the other side of the French Revolution and made these people sort of mm. proto-modern, it would just fill the thing with a different spirit. Yes. So I'm, I'm always pleased when people say it's like Stevenson. Actually, to be honest, it was never really my plan that it should be 100% like him. Um, my plan was that it should be really a step on from what from the setting and the expectations that S- Stevenson gives us in Treasure Island. Of uh, course, the thing about Stevenson, and um, I live part of my life in Edinburgh, and on uh, actually on a road which he walked mm. very regularly because he, he lived, well, part of his time anyway, up in Swanson Village, and he would walk right. down yeah. the Braid Barn and walk up into Edinburgh. And if you read his stories of the Edinburgh he knew, yeah. he walked up our road oh. actually every morning, which Fantastic. is which is lovely. Yeah. Um, but of course, you realise that he was living in a city, although he was a very 19th century figure, um, which was 
alive in a yeah. way that it's quite difficult with enlightenment yes. ideas. And, Absolutely. And, you know, the vortex. You, you, you know uh, yeah. whoever it was who stood outside St. Giles and said you couldn't stand here, a visiting English scientist, That's said right. you cannot stand here for an hour without That's meeting right. 12 men of genius yes. and Absolutely. shaking them by the hand. And it was, you know, it was Voltaire yeah. said it was the most yeah. civilized city in Europe. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, well, on a good day, it's still. Let's not get into politics. Like it may have changed a little <laughs> bit since then. Anyway, but 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 the point was, I mean, he was there was a ferment of ideas yes, there, quite. and the whole sort of medical. Well, he's tremendously to do with that. Tremendously to do with that. So there is this, there's a sort of restraint in him in Treasure Island in one sense that he is pitching it before all that kicks yes. off. But at the same time, because of the what we're talking about is the secret engine, there is also, as is manifest in the other books, as we've been saying, this very distinctly modern preoccupation with showing how family dynamics of one kind or another um, lie at the heart of everything that happens in the, in the book. There's, there's another point about him too. You're a poet um, and his capacity to turn a phrase, to, mm. to get the right image, to compress a thought into a yeah. beautiful sentence is immense, yeah. isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't quite want to say unrivaled, but right up there with Dickens and other mm. people who are very brilliant at doing that particular thing. For instance, do you remember or remember when um, Jimmy's on the boat, he's sort of bunked off from the rest of them and managed to sail the boat, the Hispaniola, around the island, anticipating cleverly. They're also taking a very big risk that if he hides it away, then they can then escape yes. if they get away from the baddies. Um, and Israel Hands is on the boat. Ah, uh, Israel um, Hands, yeah. And they climb up the, and it's on a sandbank, do you remember? And it's tilt, so it's tilted over. Um, so when Jim shoots Hands, Hands drops off the boat and doesn't just sort of smash to pieces on the deck, but falls straight into the water. And as Jim stroke Stevenson looks down into the water, he sees the little fish moving around over him. And the fish, because they stir the water as they are travelling through it, seems to animate the body lying on the sandy bottom of the, of the shallow uh, little bay. Um, and I remember, again, actually, to, to go back to where we came in on this, I can remember reading that for the first time many years ago now, and thinking, boy, that's good. I mean, it just is absolutely brilliant example of how show not tell, that old yes. chestnut, can produce something which is both utterly compelling in itself, because we really feel the sort of deadness of the, the person at that point, but also we feel that because of the action of the fish, the way in which, he, I mean, he may be dead in body, but the spirit is sort of lingering on and still terrifying and all this. Without a word of explication about that, we just feel it in our guts, which is the best way to, to get it. Well, guts is a good point. I mean, we, we were talking in another context. We met the other day, and I was saying, you know, you, you read some of Stevenson's poetry and that elegiac poem really? that he wrote um, almost literally in his deathbed but I mean it, about where he wanted to die and mm. be buried in, in the South Sea Islands where he'd gone for reasons of health and he died young, um, relatively young yeah. um, and th those lines, um, uh, the hunter, home, home, is the hunter from home, the hill. home is the hunter home from the hill and the sailor yeah. home from the sea. Yes. That, that sense of, of longing for completion. Yeah, absolutely. Very hard to read without crying, that poem, I think. In fact, it's kind of impossible to read without crying. So it's, that's, it's partly about what it says, that sense of exactly the unfulfilled longing for completion, or 
and or the feeling that completion comes in the way that is both entirely satisfactory and absolutely terrible because you die. Um, but also a very good example of how a poem, like all the best poems do, can communicate what it's ab fundamentally about by the noise it makes. I mean, it has a, he has a brilliant ear, Stevenson. Yes. Um, and the melancholy rise and fall of that poem sort of is the poem in an absolutely powerful I, way. Ear is so important, isn't it, in prose? Yeah. Well, yeah, everywhere, I think. I mean, I, I'm particularly interested in this in relation to poems, as you know. Yeah. Um, I'm deeply of the view that whatever we reckon the meaning of a poem particularly to be, we have to accept that it's got as, m and, and gladly do, that it has as much to do with the, s the noise the words make as w with whatever they mean when we see them written down on the page, which is why Robert Frost, for instance, said the ear is the best reader. That, that's kind of what he means. But of course, that's true for, um, f for fiction as well. And, in the, and again, this is, goes back to something we were saying near the beginning of this talk, the way that Stevenson moves so quickly through the sentences. They're so no-nonsense. I mean, they're full of, as it were, poetry, like the image that I just mentioned. But they, uh, they really kind of crack on and get on with it and, and don't ever step back from the story which is being told. Wonderful. It's one of the refreshing things about these books that um, seems to me they remind us that you know, it is possible to write a story which isn't one that Waterstones might pigeonhole yeah. 8 to 10, yeah, quite. 10 to 12. Right. Can you imagine somebody yeah. who is 12 saying, oh, I'm in the 10 to 12 section. Yeah. Oh, I mean, good. they're going to, I mean, sorry, I completely agree. Anyway, well, um, I think the but the, the great the thing about this is it is a book that can be enjoyed and appreciated uh, and savoured, you know, by somebody of, of eight, if they're reasonably literate, or 10 or 12, or a teenager, or somebody who's 60 yeah, well or 80. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's very, I mean, I deeply agree with that. And actually, there are two things, if I may, that just quickly Mm. say about it. One is that, again, I, I've always deeply believed that children, whatever, however one sort of identifies yes. that enormous group, um, why on earth do we ever think that children should not be like ourselves in enjoying mystery in yes. books and in enjoying things that they don't entirely get? I mean, the Not everything has to be explained. No, really not. And actually, we know that the things that we most enjoy, we run after, thinking, what, what? I mean, feeling intrigued and bewitched sometimes, but, but not entirely getting it. So that, that's one thing about the sort of categorization of things. The other thing I've probably almost certainly forgotten. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it will come, it'll come back. I mean, age, I, I know. It age wreaks its, its troubles right. as we go yes. on. But, but, Sorry. Uh, but there is, uh, you see, it's interesting. I mean, reading the, the, the second of the sequels, as it were, The New World, um, which, yes, yeah, not giving too much away to say that the... The children, um, Jim and Natty, who are the, the, the children of Hawkins and Silver, are, are in the States and they're, and they're dealing with uh, people we now call, we used to call cowboys and Indians, but now Native Americans, because um, we're of a certain age. Yeah. Um, but so, so touching on, on, on that past, but, but what's very interesting about it is you can write chapters in here. You're not embarrassed to write a chapter that's two pages long. No, well, I, that probably is something that Stevenson made me sort of have the courage to do because, I mean, his chapters are often very Because it seems quite short. a courageous thing, yeah. but it shouldn't be. Well, not for somebody who's used to writing poems, which often don't get to the bottom of a well, single no, page. No, no, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that going it's on, easier no, for no you. doubt. Um, but also I thought, um, 
Oh, I don't remember what I was going to say, and actually it does bear on this. What I was going to say was that all that you were saying about Stevenson's enduring popularity and our sense of his greatness is true, and hooray for it. But it is very st- striking that within universities, I mean, I work in a, in a university, yeah. and I'm struck by my own university and the others that I've had anything to do with in the past. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about books in which nothing happens. Yes. Henry James. I mean, I love Henry James, so don't get me wrong. And of course, Henry James was very interested in Stevenson, too. Yes, they couldn't be more different. But they could not really be more different. So universities know what to do with books in which not very much happens, narratively speaking. But they don't really know what to do with books in which a lot happens, yes. narratively Adventure speaking. Adventure stories are alarming. Stories. They are. It's a, it's a real problem, I think. So Stevenson has almost no presence within the Academy. Shame on them because he's a genius. And actually, aren't there other interesting things to say about storytelling? I mean, not just because as a species we like it so much, we respond to but it you so see, much. If you, if you look at the craft of storytelling, if you look at somebody like Simenon, yeah. now, the, the Maigret books, yeah. I was, every time I go to France for one reason or another for work, I, I try to read a Maigret book in Very French because I think it gets me, into, you know, Excellent. all the rest of it. Yes. And um, you think, what would Madame Maigret say now? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Anyway, um, it's you realise these wonderfully compressed things, yeah. but in terms of yeah. literary technique, they're yeah. fantastic. Yeah, quite. And in hundred pages, quite. There's this wonderful psychological yeah. drama. Absolutely. And that's what that's what he does yes, as well. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, I it would be lovely. I mean, I do what I can to make sure that he appears in almost every conversation I have at my at my place of work. Yes. So I'm, I mean, I'm fighting the good fight Well, for you know it. that, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've been involved, but you know that in Edinburgh, uh, they're trying to start, and yes, they have indeed. started a, a kind of yeah. Stevenson Day in November, his death day, or is it his birthday, I can't remember, um, it, which day, is like a Bloomsday yes. in right. Dublin. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, there are events, and, and people like Ian Rankin are very yeah. involved in it, yeah. and Sandy McCallsmith, and so on, you know, trying to yeah. sort of uh, get it going. Um, but I think people are beginning to realise that there is a sort of treasure trove of of literary, um, I don't know, insight and grace yeah, in this stuff, quite, which has always quite. been uh, tended to be shuffled off as well. The children's books. I'm afraid I think that's true. I mean, that's which is sort of moronic, actually. Yeah, um, but it's. It, it, I mean, not only happens. for the reasons that we've been give, giving, but also I think because it is very interesting to think of him in relation to his other great contemporaries, Henry James, also Conrad. I mean, he is often occupying territory which is very, very like yes, Conrad's. Yes. There's a late Stevenson book that some of you will probably know, a short piece, uh, I mean, even shorter than mm. this, called The Ebb Tide, yes. which, I mean, I don't want to say could be written by Conrad, but Conrad would have been proud to write it. It's about well, very similar sorts of things. And some things. of the short stories, I mean, there's a story um, called The Tale of Todd Laprake, of yeah. the man climbing up the cliffs of the yeah. Bass Rock yeah. and being attacked by yeah. gulls which is just, it is one of the most spooky. Can I just, um, as we close, and in thanking Andrew, uh, just read the last two paragraphs of the original, because if you want to know why it is the story has to go on, all you need to do is remember this, of silver we have heard no more, ha ha. Anyway, that formidable seafaring man with one leg has at last gone clean out of my life, but I dare say he met his old negress, and perhaps he still lives in comfort with her and Captain Flint, the parrot. It's to be hoped so, I suppose, for his chances of comfort in another world are very small. The bar silver and the arms still lie for all that I know, where Flint buried them. And certainly they shall lie there for me. Oxen and wain ropes wouldn't bring me back again to that accursed island. 
and the worst dreams that ever I have are when I hear the surf booming about its coasts or start upright in bed, the sharp voice of Captain Flint still ringing in my ears, pieces of eight, pieces of eight. And of course, you know, yeah. he has to go back. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if there was ever a kind of, no, I'm not going, oh, yes, I am. That, that's it, isn't it? Precisely. <laughs> and that is Stevenson. Can I, I thank you all for coming. Um, and to wish those of you who are going to the show tonight an extremely happy experience, and those who may see it later on the same, and thank on your behalf extremely warmly while commending these two splendid adventure stories as well as the original to you all, Andrew Motion. Thank well, you very thank much. You for coming. Thank you, Jim, very much. <laughs>